0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. I hope you guys had a wonderful week. Um, This week's Wheel of the Week, we're going to get started with K37 Rain Shadows. So that is the son of Sequim, which is K12. Um, K37 was born in 2004 and has two sisters, one older, one younger, and then one nephew named Tika that was born in 2001. Um, but this week we 're going to talk about emotions and the role that that plays in conservation. I also do want to go ahead and let you guys know that um the Patreon has not been working this entire time, and thanks to Kendra and Kirsty, we figured that out yesterday and um so now the Patreon is up and working if you guys would like to check out our patreon uh but before we dive into our episode, which i'm super excited about, just a quick message from our sponsors. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com breachingextinction and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening. It's easy. Go to audible.com breachingextinction. How are you doing today?
1: I'm great. Thank you. It's a beautiful day here.
0: Yes. Are you in Oregon? Yeah, I live in Corvallis, Oregon. Oh my yeah. gosh. Amazing! I've I love Oregon. I feel like I don't know. I'm from the East Coast, and not a lot of people travel to Oregon. And I feel like it's like the U.S.'s best kept secret because it's like so pristine, <laughs> and not a lot of people travel there. Amazing, awesome! So I have Kelly Beatenwig here with me today, and um, she just did a paper on the mixed uh, emotions associated with orca conservation strategies. Um, so can you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are, how you got into your line of work, and then we can dive in and talk about your paper?
1: Yeah, excellent. My name, um, yeah, as you said, I'm Dr. Kelly Beatenweg. I'm a professor, um, at Oregon State University in the Fisheries and Wildlife Department, but I'm a social scientist there. So I actually study how humans connect to nature and how we go about managing natural resources. Um, so yeah, so... I I did have a pretty niche place in these types of conversations you know Mm -hmm. thinking of not that many scientists out there think about this role but it's really this um that this this type of research that informs how we develop policy and why people are reacting to the policies that we develop.
0: Yeah and I think that that's super vital and I think in the scientific community, or at least like, you know, when we're in school, we're taught like not to anthropomorphize animals and keep our emotions out of science and all these other things. But in the real world, that's not how it works. And that's not what the public is taught. And so having that mindset, I think limits us. So when I, um, someone over at NOAA sent me this paper. And so when I got it, I was so excited to see it. Cause I was like, oh my gosh, like we need this. Um, so tell us about your paper and what motivated you to, um, research this. Yeah,
1: so the motivation, I work with the Puget Sound Partnership, which is a state agency that is tasked with coordinating the recovery of Puget Sound. Um, And I work with them in all kinds of ways to think about how to better integrate social science and social perspectives in their strategies for ecosystem recovery. And they were quite involved in the um, the ORCA task force that was set up by the governor in Washington State. Um, in fact, they believe that they were the leaders of it. And in leading that ORCA task force conversation, they opened up um, and summarized public comments to what the ORCA task force was doing. Mm-hmm. So the government had a website where it asked people to provide feedback for the ORCA task force. Um, and uh, people were just sending letters in turns out that they got 17,000 public responses for the ORCA task force on Southern Resident killer whale well recovery, which is really uncommon (laughs) there's there i mean even even some of your more um popular conflict oriented topics do not get seventeen thousand public respondents and i think a whole part of the reason why there were so much um response at this time was that the orca task force was overlapping it actually started just before but it was overlapping with um j17's um Uh, uh, stillborn right that she Mm -hmm. carried for those 17 days so people were reacting emotionally to a current event and realizing that there was this policy process happening and they were expressing that um reaction um in that in that process so when they said oh yeah we got 17,000 public responses I said what do they say and they were like well we won't be able to analyze them and I you know like we'll we'll summarize them Mm -hmm. or read read them quickly and I said this is this is data. This is, yeah. This is data that we need to really understand more. So that was the impetus was just the fact that we had data. I actually mm-hmm. didn't even have to go through a research design process. Right. Mm-hmm. It just was there and it existed. And then the specific um, the specific approach to thinking of looking at the content of these for emotions actually came from the lead author um, Haley Kihotaman, who can't be with us today, but she is. Just this phenomenal um, budding scientist. When she was a senior in college with me, she came and said, I want to understand um, the role of emotions in people's response to conservation. And I said, Okay, that sounds great mm-hmm. <laughs> because I study psychology and um, I study how we value nature and how we make decisions around nature. I hadn't focused specifically on emotions yet, but um, I recognize and am, am fascinated by the fact that emotions are a critical part of our decision making mm-hmm. um, without emotions we don't act we don't we don't do stuff right it's part right. of our brain processing um, and so she looked up you know how do you how do you do this how does one go about analyzing emotions and found this really interesting um, tool which is called um, it's based on natural language processing where you can take large amounts of written data or even oral data and um, categorize the emotions based on the words people are using. Mm -hmm. Um, And so she developed, she worked with our um, computer sciences department to develop an algorithm, a Python um, algorithm that would basically, we just threw all of those Um, responses in and it Mm -hmm. popped out the number of times people were expressing anger, the number of times people were expressing sadness or fear. So the specific um, framework we were using had six different emotions that it categorized for us.
0: Okay. So how did you determine like what language was associated with which emotion? So
1: that is something that was predetermined based on the tool we used. Okay. So the tool that had been designed, um, by the Canadian um, Institute of Sciences. And they, the way they did it, um, if you're curious about this, yes, <laughs> this, this is a little bit of an off topic for mm-hmm. your listeners probably, but is that they um, found, I think it's 15,000 of the most commonly used English words.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then they got a bunch of respondents, human respondents to categorize those words based on the six different emotions mm-hmm. and then these they basically found the mean responses okay. from all those people and used that to create it's basically like a dictionary it's called a lexicon okay. to create a lexicon so that these fifteen thousand words either they are either yes or no for anger yes or no for sadness yes or no for happiness right mm-hmm. based on the this representative sample of people who've helped identify that
0: yeah so that makes sense wow. yeah that totally makes sense that like I feel like that probably saves so much time too. Like this is a very like quick way that we can kind of analyze emotional data, I guess.
1: Exactly, and that's the whole point. I mean, it's very um, broad brush, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can do it for what we did here. It definitely shouldn't be the only approach people take, Um, but for something like how else would you analyze 17,000 public comments? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, So what'd you guys find then? So we found that the
1: majority, of, um, the majority of emotions that were being presented were actually emotions associated with trust,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, which, which there's a very specific reason for this that I'll get into in a second, mm-hmm. um, that were then followed by anticipation and fear, um, which is actually really an interesting um, trifecta mm-hmm. for thinking about policy. Um, when people trust, um and are a little bit of afraid and have some anticipation they are much more willing to engage in really conservative um practices like let's stop doing things Mm -hmm. whereas when people are angry or disgusted they are more likely to kind of revolt right then they don't they don't want any level of um changing policy that's going to force them to change their behaviors Mm -hmm. so we were the reason why we were really surprised about trust is because just generally, natural resource management doesn't have a whole lot of trust going on, mm-hmm. um, and the reason that we we do have trust is that so many of the letters were being written towards the governor, asking the governor to help help save the orcas. Mm-hmm. And in that language, what we're seeing is that they recognize that, that this authority, this mm-hmm. person of authority, might actually be able to do something. Mm-hmm. If not, they wouldn't have been you know pleading to the governor that this was even an option. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, people who have given up on some level of authority having an, an action would, would just stop even responding to that authority.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And then we also what we also found that I thought was really interesting was the level of um, emotion people were playing toward how, how important it was for the orcas to represent um, the, how it contributed to their joy in terms of representing the the clean place that they lived and um, representing the healthiness of the place that they lived, um, for food and for harvesting and for being a beautiful place and recreating, um, it just really bringing in that whole ecosystem level, mm-hmm. um, dialogue, not just the whale itself. So yes, they were anthropomorphizing the whale, but they were also seeing the whale as this symbol of, of this, the Puget Sound that they are,
0: um, really proud of being in. Absolutely. And I know a lot of times in policy, like, you know, at least when I was doing my studies in college, like they take into like account the economic valuation, like the environmental valuation resources, like what level of resources it has. Do you think that we should start, you know, considering the emotional value of things or even is there a way to quantify that? Well, that's a <laughs> that's a big question. It's a great question.
1: And I think that, um I think that's a really inter- that's a really interesting question because so I do work on non economic valuation. Mm-hmm. I do work on thinking about the reasons why, you know, can we can we mon- um, manage things because they contribute to um, our psychological restoration, or can we, for some of us, right, mm-hmm. or can we manage them because they contribute to our cultural practices, things that maybe can't be measured with dollars or with biological. Um, I guess I've never really thought of emotion as as a way to as another valuation to manage for and I think we would get ourselves into some sticky territory because then then it's like which emotion do you prioritize and we never want to say that negative versus positive emotion is better actually both both kinds of emotions are critical for moving us forward so I don't, I don't know that I would say we, we manage for emotion, but I would say that emotion informs how effective our management is going to be.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: like the, the, if we're choosing a certain kind of a strategy, but these are the dominant and they don't match where people are emotionally, then they're probably going to fall flat on their face.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I also think while this is a public survey, I actually really believe that managers themselves need to check their own emotions. and. Think about what emotions they're coming from as they develop their um, their strategies and their tools, and not and these aren't just scientists but policymakers. And I know, like you said, we were trained to be objective, right? But that doesn't exist.
0: No. Right.
1: <laughs> Whenever we make natural resource policy, we're coming from an emotional place as well. And so I also I just think this conversation of emotion we just need to bring it back into our dialogue and not have it be um, something we don't we don't consider.
0: Yeah. It's. I have a quote in front of me from your paper, and it says, "In fact, some studies have found that the effect of emotions are a better predictor for a final decision, including policy support, um, than more common studies that measure the influence of social values." And I think that that's really interesting. And I think you're completely right that our policymakers and our other people have to make um they have to check their emotions and you know whenever I think about what it would be like to be a policymaker I'm like you know that's a difficult spot to be in because you have so many different facets that you have to think about and so many people that you're trying to please and I kind of think that shame probably plays a huge role in why people do or don't do things Mm. Um, and fear and fear yeah that as well and you know for them it's like there's so many layers it's like it's your livelihood it's like what you've built your career on your name on so like there's ego playing a role as well but i think you're totally right and i you know definitely have to check my emotions too like for example when you know all the policies came out about the whale watching um regulations for the southern residents um i was really upset because i felt like the science backed the regulations and i didn't see my community backing the science and i found that very upsetting and i needed to communicate that to my community of why we need to listen to science, but had to. I recorded an episode about it, but had to re-record because my emotions got in the way the first time I tried to record it. So I completely know what you're talking about when you say we have to check our emotions because it does play a role. Realistically, I think being aware of it definitely helps us. Yeah, I'm curious. Why? What did you feel like you had to re-record? Why did you have to redo it? Um, just because I like. I know that shame is not an effective tool for getting people to change. And I felt that the tone that I had used in the original episode, because I was so upset with the fact that I felt like the whale watching community was not listening to the scientists, but they listen to scientists when it comes to salmon and all these other things. um, I felt like I was kind of othering them as opposed to like standing with them and being like, Hey, I see that this is hard. I also love the whales. I want to watch the whales, but I want them here for a long time. So I think we all need to just back off just mm-hmm. so the Southern residents, of course, not all whale watching and it, it you know it's different in every area. Um, mm-hmm. But I just like, didn't think that me being angry was gonna be, um, wasn't gonna get anybody to listen. I don't think.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. That's very
0: um, aware of, <laughs> that's very astute. <laughs> <stupid. laughs> yeah. I mean, I also have a degree in psychology and environmental studies, so
1: this is perfect for you. (laughs) Yes.
0: That's why I was so excited. I was like, wow, this is so cool. Like, and I, I think that we really do have to think about the role of our emotions because like you, you know, said in this paper, it does play a huge role in our decision-making and there was another quote in here that really resonated with me. Um, let me see where it is. Um, Oh, it said, making a statement of fact in emotional context, for example, will do little to modify public's cognitive and behavioral responses. And I just thought of, like, the whale watching industry. Like, I use that example just because it's such a good example for so many reasons for a lot of things. Um, But um, I just thought that that was really interesting because it, it seemed like a completely, like, all of, like, people's retaliation to the new regulations seemed all emotional because there was, like... I went back through and read every study from the nineties about whale watching and the Southern residents. And like, we really should leave them alone right now. Like until they're fine, we should leave them alone. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah,
1: and so what's really interesting about that statement is it comes from a lot of um, current, uh, I guess it's not recent research, but current dialogue around communications Mm -hmm. in these topics. It's also true with climate change. It's the Mm -hmm. same kind of an issue where when people are emotional or their identity is at stake, um, if you give a fact that does not match the way they see the world, they actually complete, not in rejecting your fact, it actually strengthens and solidifies and makes their way of seeing the world even tighter. Um, So, which is kind of terrifying, right? Absolutely. And it's also, it's true for us. So when I say they, I mean myself as well. So it Mm -hmm. means if I'm emotional about something, and I may not have, you know, all the right information and someone comes and tries to bring me the information, but I don't trust them. I don't identify with them. And they say something that doesn't go against me. I'm going to keep coming up with more reasons why my way must be right. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm going to keep trying to find ways to get rid of this cognitive dissonance of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and this is why one of my biggest pet peeves with the conservation movement is the Claim that we just need to continue educating people, because I think what that has done is really divide us more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, because of this exact this exact um, phenomenon that we're ta- that I'm talking about right now, where if you come in saying that you know something they don't know and that doesn't match their understanding of the world, it just just pulls us apart and it makes us really become divisive.
0: Yeah, and I think that right there makes a case for why we need to better understand emotions in conservation because we can't really get anything done if, you know, if we have this divide or if we have these barriers. So I think, I don't know, like from how I see it, I think that we all personally need to work on ourselves and be aware of the role that our emotions play. But I think that it's also a conversation that we should be having in our undergraduate classes and, um, you know, in the field in general of like, you know, hey, I know that like this is hard for you because, you know, maybe you did see to like, what push your calf around or whatever the reason is that it's hard for somebody um, but that is so interesting that you say that just because we have, like, there's definitely a place for it. So how do you think we can, um, you know, what do you think is the solution other than education? How do we fix that divide?
1: Oh yeah. Thank you for that question. Um, and unfortunately, so I'll answer it, but then I'll give you, unfortunately, <laughs> the answer is building trust, mm-hmm. um, building relationships. Um, w- the way we can. Com- the way we can effectively communicate is through um better understanding each other and feeling like we're heard as well mm-hmm. right we're, we're open to listening when we feel like that person actually cares about us yeah the unfortunate part about that is the world is just getting bigger and bigger mm-hmm. and more um less in contact we are mostly in contact electronically and agencies can't necessarily build personal relationships with the general public right if you're yes. talking about um, the ORCA task force, right? For example, they've got 4 million people in the Puget Sound that they're having to, it can't build relationships with.
0: Yes.
1: Um, but there are other ways of building relationships at a broad scale mm-hmm. that are, that could help us that mm-hmm. um, contribute to um, better communication. And and this isn't exactly my field. I, I do teach, a, as you mentioned, an undergrad. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think we have to start an undergrad, but it's it's kind of at a basic level because, um, <clears throat> it's so new for people and and we have to gradually build this skill set as we're going um and this idea of it's not just mass education is even though we've probably been saying it for 20 years in psychology and communication science it's still just now getting to people And and i don't know if it even is for the most part because everyone thinks that that other people will change just like they did and for the most part people who are in conservation became passionate about it because they loved their schooling mm-hmm. or, you know, right. And if it, it education did affect them because it fit with them at that time. Right. Um, but they're not able to see how the rest of their classmates were not why they didn't get engaged. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Absolutely. With that same information.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, interesting. So do you think we need to change the approach on education or maybe just like culturally, I guess, maybe normalize being aware of your emotions and the role that that plays? That's what I think personally. And
1: so um, I don't mean that education isn't important. Mm -hmm. Education is important for, especially for audiences that are ready to receive that education, Mm -hmm. audiences that are already engaged, that already have a, a baseline level of interest. And especially when the source of that information is the source that they trust, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a good, you know, 20, 25% of the population is ready for education Mm -hmm. and information. For other parts that are just not even engaged in this topic, have never thought about water, never thought about whales, then we have to get to them in different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, But in terms of like educating us about emotions, yeah, I actually, I just finished teaching today Mm -hmm. (laughs) my one of my undergrad classes, um, on emotional intelligence. Okay. And, and, and there, and these are, it's a required class for fisheries and wildlife majors. That's amazing. Imagine, right. And, but can you imagine like if you, when we were that age, I don't know, I, I, I wonder how much pushback I get in general. Like, I don't know if I was ready at that age for someone to get me to think about my emotions yet. Um, so, I, I mean, I think it's great, and I think it's productive for them, and, and but I think it's just the start of the process and that it's a lifelong process of being aware of our emotional, the role of our emotions in all of this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think it depends on the culture of the school. I know like I went to Eckerd College and um, our like, there's a freshman course that's offered called leadership and self-discovery practicum. And it's like about emotions and how you develop things. And that was a very popular class that always filled up. There was always a wait list. Um, oh. but you know, it also like with that age group too, like, like, it like you said, there's some people who are willing to receive and some people who aren't, and we can't force them, but I think the more exposure, the better, um, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Um, I'm so glad that you guys offer that. How long has that been in place? My class? Yes.
1: Um, <clears throat> I developed it when I first got here, mm-hmm. so um,
0: it's been there for like four years now. Okay, and that's a requirement for everybody in that program. Mm-hmm. That's yes. awesome. while they've made it. So, what is kind of the curriculum? What do you guys talk about?
1: Well, so it's a communication skills class, okay. um, but the foundation of the class is that you have to start by knowing yourself
0: mm-hmm. and
1: you have to start by knowing the things that are coming into play as you communicate. Okay. Um, so we focus on thinking about your own um, identity and where you come from and your own worldviews, your own biases, potentially um, the, what you what how how good you are at noticing your own emotions mm-hmm. <laughs> and regulating your own emotions and how good you are at engaging with other people based on emotions. so for like, when you ask what's the curriculum um, do there's like a little emotional intelligence quiz that you can do online i have them um reflect on the best leaders that they've ever had they've models in the natural resource sciences Mm -hmm. people that they know and think about the qualities that have made them leaders and almost never is it because they are excellent mathematicians or statisticians it's almost always because of that emotional intelligence in leading Mm -hmm. um and then I actually have them one of my favorite activities for this class which is um and they all say it is as well, I, I tell them they have to find a topic that they tend to get emotionally charged by. Mm-hmm. And they sit and listen with a blog or a podcast or something on that topic for two hours. And then their assignment is to write objectively, summarizing what that person said and why that person felt that way about mm-hmm. that topic. So it could be, you know, for somebody who believes in climate change being human derived, somebody who doesn't believe climate change is is mm-hmm. caused by humans, right? And, and, Forcing them to sit with that just to build that skill set of what is it like to sit without emotion and hold someone else's emotion and then and then from there is when we can think about how we communicate better in the future.
0: Wow, that's awesome. I think that your students are definitely going to benefit from that. And I wish that more programs had that. I wish that my program had that. That's awesome. (laughs) Um, so with this paper that you wrote, what is kind of your goal, like to make people more aware of the like process of emotions with the Southern residents or in conservation in general?
1: That's a great question. Um, you know, we're, we're always in this space as scientists do we get to do science just because it's cool or do we do we always have to have like an ulterior motive for our science right Right. um and i think this paper goes both directions Mm because part of it is we were just like what would it be like if we just took this tool and analyzed emotions like what would it look like Mm -hmm. we were all just super um geeky about that yeah (laughs) so our our, one of our goals was just saying how fun is it to do this tool and take this big data um, and analyze emotions but the other part was also to bring to the I mean the the reason we published it in a conservation journal was to bring to the conversation that um, yeah let's remember emotions are part of this and we don't have to always um, in, in, instead, the way conservation has often dealt with emotions is to ignore and neglect them, and, and or to, to brush them off and say, yes. "Oh, well, people who are emotional are not shouldn't be in the room. They shouldn't be having this conversation yes. because we can have objective people in this room." And I think, uh, as psychologists, we realize that doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, and so I want to bring that back to no. Look, emotions are real, and and not only are they real, but there's some productivity from analyzing them. Like they actually might help us think through our policy options here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you on that. And I think, I mean, that's one of the things that I've kind of criticized about the science field before is that like, we totally are like, you have to be objective. And I think, when you're collecting and processing data, yes, but, like, your response to that, like, you can have an emotional response as long as you don't let it affect, like, the work that you're producing, you know, and it's Mm -hmm. also, like, when we repress our emotions, that doesn't do anyone any good ever, so, um, yeah, I I totally agree with you, and I've seen that, like, if you, like, you just shouldn't be in the room if you have that um, response, which, like, as humans, like, I mean, biologically, we know that we need emotions, so, like, I feel like, biologists should understand that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Well, and and it's also just, so one, 100% agree with you, but it's also just not even the reality. Like when we have these public forums, the people in the forums are the most emotional ones and they do have the biggest impact on policy. Yeah. So it's, it's even totally misrepresentative of how this works to begin with to say that only objective people are in the room because it's not true.
0: Yeah. Right? It's not true. And then it keeps people out of, you know, I think there's a lot of people I've noticed, like the amount of people that I've had on the podcast or, or talked to in general, they're like, I can't be like an orca advocate or I'm not a good enough, like orca conservationist. And I'm like, if you write like one letter to a representative, you're a good enough conservationist. But so many people are intimidated by getting involved because that somebody has said that they're either too emotional or that science is too hard for them to understand. And I oh, wow. think that like, we don't, Like, the scientific community doesn't benefit from that. The animals don't benefit from that. You know, I think more voices at the table is never a bad thing, you know? Mm. You know, you said that some people, when they have, like, anger, they have a certain reaction versus when they have, like, disgust, there's a different Mm. reaction or a a different mode of of action that they take. Do we see that, like, there's one emotion that seems to be more effective than others when either communicating with politicians and or taking actions? Does that make sense? Sorry, it's like a... Mm hard question no
1: it's fine well and so the one thing that i do want to to also make sure i'm not being too um didactive on mm-hmm. is that it's it is also still hard to predict the behavioral response of an emotion right so there is still variation like we can all feel anger and express it differently mm-hmm.
0: um so
1: that's one thing i just want to be careful that i'm not making a statement right. that's overly um general but but there tends to be in our culture in this in in our um Northern Pacific Northwest culture, especially, Mm -hmm. um, there tend to be more common, um, reactions or behaviors of a response. And I guess I do think that trust is a pretty important one. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think that acknowledgement of trust, um, and, and some people argue that trust is a cognition and not a behavior. And this is, um, psychologists, Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, this is just going on one way of measuring um, emotions, but I, just the idea of trust comes from the idea of your willingness to accept um, the potential for danger, your willingness to accept the help from someone else, yes. that, that emotional part of trust. Mm-hmm. I think it's pretty critical in working with, um, with policymakers, yeah.
0: Probably on um, their side of things too, if they feel trusted, and you have faith in them, they're going to feel better than if you just shame them. Exactly. Right.
1: Yeah. Fear and anger just tend to be clo- like closing things like mm-hmm. not. And so basically in general, they're going to, they're not going to work so well for any sort of communication or mm-hmm. coordinate collaboration or, you know, reciprocity, reciprocity, right. Mm-hmm. Um, for the most part, those two can't don't do as well.
0: Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so are you guys planning to do more studies like this in the future? Cause I feel like this is definitely like a very good, like baseline gives us some information on this in general. Um, but should we look for more like papers from you guys, more studies?
1: That's a great question. Um, we might be doing more emotion analyses, but probably not with ORCA's. Mm-hmm. Um, what we are doing with ORCA right now is we are looking at the task force and this is an undergrad project as well. We're mm-hmm. looking at the final report of recommended strategies for ORCA, Southern Resident, whale um, uh, conservation and restoration. And um, we are looking at the extent to which different worldviews are represented mm-hmm. in the final strategies. So again, thinking of who was invited to the table um, and to what extent were their priorities and what to what extent did their priorities end up in the final recommendations or not? So that social side of how the ORCA policy was created.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and that that should come out. But I don't know what more we will do with this right now.
0: Okay. Well, this is definitely great. And I think that this is so interesting. I posted like a little picture of the abstract on um, like our Instagram stories. And I had like probably like 30 people responding asking for the link to the article like so i think this is like interesting to a lot of people so i send it out to them um but i think that this is so necessary too because it definitely plays a role and it's good to have this on the table because it hasn't i mean it's not that it hasn't been on the table but we've pushed it off the table before um are there any like final thoughts that you have or things that you would want our listeners to know
1: I feel like we have covered, uh, thank you for your excellent questions, and um, you pulled out my two favorite quotes that, as well, so oh, good. <laughs> So I feel like we've covered the main messages of the paper. It's actually, in some ways, a very
0: simple paper. Right? It's very simple, yes, and I think that that's nice, too, because, I mean, I think this is a paper that's very easily digestible by the public, like, they can read this and mm-hmm. it's not hard, and, um, like, the way that you guys conducted the science wasn't, like, you know, terribly complex either which is always makes it better and I think in a way that creates trust with the public too is if they can understand it then they're like oh I can believe this you know Mm -hmm. so yep that's important um I do I don't know how much time you've spent with the whales but a question that I ask everybody that comes on the podcast is what can we learn from the whales
1: um so I um I I did live in the Puget Sound for several years and Mm -hmm. I lived on Bastion Island. Um, And so just to answer your question of how Mm -hmm. I got to see them somewhat frequently in commuting to um, the mainland. but What can we learn from the whales? The first word that comes to me is longevity and I guess when I think of longevity is resilience. yeah, I guess, I guess resilience, but in, in lots of different ways. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: yeah. yeah. I don't know if specific. <laughs> yeah, no, they're definitely resilient. I mean, there's whales alive today that lived through the capture era and like the, when the government yeah. had bounties out on them and now they're like starving and they're, the whale watching industry was way worse than it used or way worse way back then. So they've lived through a lot. They're definitely resilient yeah and they keep yeah. fighting um excellent well thank you so much for coming on here this was awesome and i'll post, post the link to this um article like in our bio so that people can access it too um but thank you You. Yeah. thanks so much for joining us guys i've linked the article to the description of this episode um and please go check out our website social media page all that stuff and now our patreon that apparently works thanks to kendra and kirstie um but yes thank you guys so much and have a great week